Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This episode is brought to you by Grip Pack Calls. GP Calls epitomizes the definition of grit, which is the courage, resolve, and strength of character to see the task through. When you pick up the easiest blowing duck and goose calls on the market, you'll have the courage to make the transition to the next level of field or competition calling. The boys in the shop don't just turn durable barrels and inserts, but they spend the time to produce the highest quality internal read system possible. With the original True Grit, Nitty Gritty, Trickster, and Wood Splitter Duck Call, or the Big Hurt and Mo Crack and Goose Calls, you can produce a more versatile, realistic, and higher quality sound with all the ease of a double read. Whether you're looking to up your game or you're just starting out, let a Grip Pack Call work just as hard for you as the Grip Pack crew did to develop and bring you the next level of quality with easy blowing calls. Visit them at gpcalls.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Grip Pack Calls. Find your grit. Welcome to the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the foul front. This episode also brought to you in part by Hunt Hickory Creek. And new to Hunt Hickory Creek this year is their Central Kansas Lodge. They're going to be running hunters from the end of October all the way through January. And their main hunting area is located between Kavira National Refuge and Cheyenne Bottoms. Now, Central Kansas is a special place for waterfowl hunting. And during the peak migration, these refuges hold hundreds of thousands, if not close to millions of birds at one time. So for your chance of a hunt of a lifetime, head on over to HuntHickoryCreek.com. Because if you're going to hunt Kansas, hunt Hickory Creek. All right. Welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, episode number 15, all about duck guns. Today is an interesting logistical and recording nightmare. I've got uh, Tegan and Derek in studio. Tegan, 
What's up, guys? Derek. How's it going, everybody? And then we got Wade remote. Hey, y'all. All right. So today, today's episode is going to be all about helping you pick out a duck gun, or maybe you know, maybe you're in the market for a new duck gun. Either way, uh, we're going to get you squared away and make sure that you can uh, find the gun that is right for you. So right now, we're going to hear from James Garrity, who is the reason that we are doing this show. He sent me this huge PowerPoint slide, but we'll just get into it real quick. Okay, so today we have our duck gun buyers episode. And, you know, it's interesting. We ask for your guys' input and we ask for you guys to, you know, give us show ideas. And uh, James Garrity actually is the one that uh, brought this to our attention and I wanted to bring James on because he had kind of an interesting, um, unique story to me, at least um, enough for us to want to sit down and uh, sit down for an hour and forty-five minutes and talk about duck guns. And so we figured we'd let James uh, give us uh, a little intro into why we are recording this episode today. So, James, you want to give a quick intro into first who you are, and then you know how you hunt and how long you've been hunting. Yeah, sure, Ben. Um... So basically, uh, I'm a recent duck hunter. I've gotten into it in the last couple of years, last two years. And, uh, my buddy Richard has really got me going on it in the last year or so. And, uh, he was active in it when he was in grad school with me in college. Uh, I wasn't in grad school at the time. He was a little bit older than me. And, uh, he went, uh, wood duck hunting a lot in Tuskegee National Forest, which, <laughs> uh, wasn't very fruitful, but he loved it anyway. And, uh, I went with him a couple times. I was like, man, I'm not really sure I like this. And then, uh, we ended up hunting more flooded timber in North Alabama. And, uh, we started just getting quite a few ducks and started, it was just one of those things where it was like, okay, now I can get into this. It's not trudging <laughs> through a national forest, trying to find a wood duck. <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, yeah. Um, so right now, um, I'm working as a, uh, consulting engineer in the environmental world and, uh, that's what I do every day. So, um, I can understand everything involved with, uh, Ducks Unlimited and what they do and preservation and continuing to educate others on what, uh, a good hunter does and, uh, good conservation can provide for everyone right. out there. So. Right. Kind of a little backstory there. Nice. So what made you suggest that we do a, a duck gun buying guide episode? Well, you know, I was thinking about it, and I have <laughs> a little affliction, like my uh, wife likes to tell me, that um, I research things entirely too much, and uh, it's almost an, it, it's enjoyable for me. And for others, it's not. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I just have purchased a new shotgun, I did an incredible amount of research and I was like, you know what, maybe I should, uh, go ahead and share what I learned. So that was the idea behind it. So when you first approached me, you're like, Hey man, we should do a, you should do a, uh, you know, a duck gun, um, episode on how to choose a duck gun. And I said, ah, I don't mm-hmm. know, that doesn't seem like it entails that, that much, you know, like pick the one that you like. And then you sent me, <laughs> you sent me, you want to tell, tell them what you sent me? 
Yeah, uh, my inner engineer came out, and I sent Ben a nice little spreadsheet with about 50 rows of information with the manufacturer, the model, my reliability rating from what I learned, the chambering, the type of action, corrosion resistance, what experience I learned from others who've used it, and the cost. So, uh, And then even past that, there's uh, even more research into the types of actions and what occurs with that, as well as uh, general mechanics. Um, everybody shoots differently, and everybody enjoys a different weighted gun, uh, comb heights and you know, pull links and all sorts of different things that go into it to make it fit you. So it gets very complicated very quick. And there's a lot of fanboys out there that, you know, they'll stick with one gun their whole life, which is great if it works for you, but, um, don't limit yourself to that. I think so you missed, I think you the, missed an opportunity to use a buzzword there, an engineering <laughs> buzzword, uh, ergonomics, right? Yeah. So, ergonomics. Yeah. Well, but, uh, I'm not manufacturing specifically, so <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. So, um, uh, and I think you, you you touched on something there too. Um, the and it's something that we are going to be talking a lot about in um, the, the upcoming episodes when we talk about gear um, and when we talk mm-hmm. about suggestions and things like that. Is you know the you're talking about fanboy and they you know everybody wants to defend the the gun that they purchased or the they want to defend their purchase and. You got to give it, you got to give yourself a fair shake and you're going to hear us recommend things. And you just have to remember that it, those are just things that we have found tried, true and tested and that we're going to like recommend that to you. And it might not be the best option for you, but it was the best option for us. And just like, you want to go ahead and tell them after all that research that you did, um, you, you came up with, um, a gun that you were, you were heading out to the store to buy. And then what happened? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I went out. I, I researched a ton on what gun I wanted, and I had a specific price range too. So, Ben, when when I was thinking about it, I want to stay a thousand dollars and under. Um, budget was pretty important to me. Uh, some budgets are different for everybody. You know, there's some guys who can go out and buy a Rob Roberts custom gun for twenty one hundred dollars and not think twice, and there's guys who spend five hundred, and it's a lot. So, for me, my budget was a thousand, but in that budget. Um, and all the research I did, the number one thing I wanted was reliability. And everybody knows that's the number one thing you want. And uh, I found a Winchester SX3 um, or an SX4, either one, and uh, went out to the local gun store, which I'm blessed in the Middle Tennessee area. There's we're uh, we're heavy into our guns, so I can go anywhere, you know, 15 minutes away and go into walk into a gun store. Bourbon and guns. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, so I walked in, shelved it, and hated it with a passion it was horrible it did not work for me (laughs) (laughs) that's terrible you know it's awesome that you had you had it all picked out and then shouldered it got down you know got down in the trench and found that you know that's not the it wasn't a fit for you and then you ended up going with your number two or three i can't remember honestly it wasn't even on the list at one point um i had yeah it was something that i was like you know what i'm gonna take a look at this thing is sitting in the uh, gun store and the older gentleman sat there and went have you looked at these fronkies and i was like well i thought about it looked at it and i was like "Eh, i don't know i I don't shouldered it perfect and i was like (laughs) oh man this thing it's like it swings perfect it's not front heavy like the winchester the new sx4s are quite a bit more front heavy uh I could put it to my shoulder, up to my cheek, and it was perfect. Perfect sight, perfect everything. 
wasn't chicken winging it, you know, it, not anything like that. So it fit just right. And I was like, okay, I got to look into this. I looked into some more. Uh, it seems to be almost the same style gun as an SBE three, but without the uh, recoil spring put in the back. So it was made in the same factory as Benelli uh, on the same line, just my And I was like, okay, this, this is it for me. Awesome, man. Hey, so we appreciate you reaching out to us, um, providing you, uh, you know, us with your, you know, awesome and unique story and for getting us to do this episode. Cause we really did have a lot of fun recording it and uh, yeah. I, I can't wait for everybody to hear it. So awesome. All right. Thanks James. Yeah, no problem. All right. So let's start it off with a little segment. Uh, Tegan's going to give us a little summer conservation slash news update. Maybe if he would be prepared. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Uh, so ringnecks are the most harvested diving duck right now in the country, and their long-term average numbers continue to grow, which is weird because diving ducks, particularly lesser scop or otherwise known as bluebills, uh, their numbers are kind of hurting right now. And so last year, Delta Waterfowl decided they should study ringnecks and follow their migration patterns in hopes to not only better understand them, but maybe find a solution to also increase the habitat and breeding grounds for bluebills and canvasbacks and other diving ducks. They collected a group of female ringnecks because the females are what are important for breeding and population in Georgia, and they equipped them with radio transmitters, and they have been tracking their movements ever since. Well, today, just a few hours ago, actually, Delta Waterfowl came out with a report, and after a late winter this year, which kept most of the northern part of the country under record levels of snow and ice in April, thus affecting the water and food availability in the breeding grounds, they have finally thawed out, and the ringnecks have completed their spring migration and will hopefully be undergoing a successful hatch soon. Uh, if you guys would like to follow that study, you can actually go to Delta Waterfowl's website, and they have up a cool map up there, and you can watch the migration of the birds. Sweet. Wade, you got something uh, coming up, don't you, this week? Yeah, we uh, have our crawfish boil going on for our local DU chapter here. And uh, for people that aren't local, just kind of want to give you a little breakdown of what to expect this time of year for Ducks Unlimited events in your area. A lot of, a lot of chapters <laughs> use this time to, to do a fun shoot or a a skeet shoot or a sporting clay shoot, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's a good chance for you to get your shotgun out, which is what we're talking about today. If you haven't done that since waterfowl season closed out, uh, get up, get it out, knock the rust off, tune it up a little bit, and uh, go check out your local DU fun shoot. The best way to find one in your area is just go to www.ducks.org slash the name of your state. And then you just uh, click on events, and it'll show you everything that's coming up in your state for, for that time. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. I think we're going to go over those components that James and I just talked about. And I think the first thing that we should start off with is actions. So uh, I'll kick it off here. I'll, co I'll cover the pump actions. I I'm a big fan of pump um, just because – as long as you keep things oiled and as long as you keep them generally in the right spot, the only thing you have to worry about is your bicep tiring out. I don't know how you guys feel about it. 
No, yeah, I agree. The pump gun is definitely the old uh, rusty, dusty, tried and true. It doesn't really let you down. doesn't fail you. The pump gun is the definition of if it's not broke, don't fix it because some people have pump guns they've had for 30, almost 40 years, and they're still out there slinging steel and putting ducks down with them to this day. Wade, you, uh, I, I you kinda, for? I, I kind of fall into that category that he just hit on. I've been using an 870 since I was uh, 9 or 10 years old up until this past season. So I completely agree. I, my my thought on it always was if it wasn't broke, don't fix it. So I just kept kept getting 870s here and there and, and shot those uh, for, I guess, 25, 26 years now. Yeah, I guess I was spoiled when um, I turned 12. My grandpa traded a couple do- a couple puppies or something from a litter, and uh, I got a Browning BPS, um, which, I, I, you know, I tend to like. But I think the, the pump action is probably, <laughs> like, the best, mm, probably intro gun, uh, just probably price-wise and, you know, if you're just looking to – dabble or see if you're going to get into it pumpkin probably the action that you might want to go with yeah it's think, uh probably not the safest out of all the the different styles but it's definitely one of the safer ones too like you said for for an intro gun for a younger person you don't have to worry about them you know accidentally pulling that trigger a second time and a, and a shell going off there's that deliberate action before that before that gun's going to fire again Right, that's true. It's just one more little safe safeguard in there. To uh, yeah, it, it requires physical human input other than um, just pulling the trigger. One thing I think that pumps do too, as well, is that um, yes, you can't squeeze off three rounds um, as fast as a semi-auto, but uh, the caveat to that is is that you can't squeeze off three rounds <laughs> as fast because sometimes that's not the the most uh, uh, that's the, not the best method. <laughs> and then every time I pump and I have to bring it back up to uh, my cheek or I have to not bring it back up to my cheek, but when I pump my, you know, my sight picture gets thrown off and then I have to re-aim. So I'm aiming three times, um, if I'm shooting three times where you might only aim once if, if you have a semi-auto or something like that. So just kind of a forcing function there. Yeah, I agree with that. Having the pump gun, uh, like you said, it helps to get you back aligned on your sights. It helps you get back on that second or third bird. Uh, I remember I just bought my first semi-auto like three years ago, and my first hunt ever with it was at Cheyenne Bottoms early teal season, and a huge flock came in, and I remember I squeezed off all three rounds so fast, and I whiffed, and I was like, wow, that you know, it went by way faster than I thought I was going to. Right, right. Well, should we transition into autos? Sounds like a good spot, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tegan. Um, so, <laughs> who all at this table shoots a, a semi-auto? I do. Depends on what I'm shooting, but I do. Wade, do you have any semi-autos in your arsenal? I'm shooting auto. Yeah, yeah I shoot uh, A300 now. Okay. Nice, nice. I think the biggest thing to talk about when it comes to auto loaders um, is... Probably uh, the inertia versus gas, uh, wouldn't you say? Wade, you there? Oh, yeah. 
sorry. Yeah. yeah, so the difference between the inertia and the gas-driven, you know, you look at the gas-driven seems to uh, accept more shells uh, from what I understand, mm-hmm. but you you have the downside of the uh, of the dirtiness uh, takes a little more maintenance and cleaning to keep the gas driven cycles uh, functioning properly versus the inertia driven that doesn't seem to cycle the the lightweight low brass shells quite as well, but doesn't get as dirty either. One of the nice things with the um, inertia driven guns too is when they are dirty, you still have that because if you're um, hunting waterfowl, generally you're shooting a three inch shell. So you have that power going into breaking it free and, with the gas guns, with the whole um, the system being regulated so that they can shoot the lighter loads, that means if they're trying to release that gas, if your gun gets frozen up, it's not going to have as much force going into that bolt while you're inertia-driven. Just got done shooting inertia-driven today, and it feels like about every bit of recoil is going into your shoulder, which is going to help break that gun free, and it's going to keep it cleaner, rubbing, cleaner running without all the carbon residue and that gas that they're talking about gas operated, the main gas is carbon, which can build up residues and make that gun get clogged up very easily. Right. Right. So yeah, my understanding is, is that, you know, inertia kicks way harder. Gas is a little uh, nicer to operate. And as long as you keep her clean, uh, she's good to go. Um, But I guess we'll transition there. Is there, I, I think, the reason that uh, autoloaders are so popular is because uh, of that quick target acquisition. Um, it's been very few instances with my pump that I've been able to take three shots at a group of teal coming in or, or zinging by. Um, and usually my buddies with the, you know, the semis, they're, they, they do get to squeeze off three rounds. And that's, you know, that's more pellets in the air. That's one more opportunity. Um, and obviously we'll talk about that here. Uh, in a little bit, but um, I, I think it's the semi-auto is probably the staple of American North American waterfowling, and uh, not going away anytime soon. I think was it was it Browning that made the first one. I think uh, I can't remember his first name, but you know, Mister Browning. I think he made the first one, but it wasn't actually a Browning gun, right? It was another company. Um, Remington's given credit for engineering the, what they call the modern gas loader, like. They perfected with the 1100s, what everyone calls perfected with the gas loader. But because I think the initial semi autos were in the early 1900s, but they were all just inertia driven. So, is there is there any instance where, um, or is it all preference, the inertia versus gas? I have to wonder sometimes, you know, you said the, the semi auto is the construct of American waterfowler. And sometimes I have to wonder if that's almost like a social construct kind of thing. Where, you know, you see people on social media, on TV shows, uh, everyone's shooting a semi-auto now. And sometimes I think that that's just the thing. And sometimes I wonder if the pump hasn't been forgotten about because maybe it, you know, doesn't look as cool or something. Sure, I think there's something to be said about saying, like, the pump is like a blue-collar, like, workhorse. And, I mean, I think every guy out there, um, (laughs) you know, probably sees himself or, you know, in his dreams or... Uh, or, or maybe not of having like the fancy, you know, uh, SBE two um, and, and things like that. And I, I think that that um, that's okay and that's fine. If you've got the money and it feels good and you like it, buy it. Uh, and I'll keep touching back to that here. Like I don't think 
we're not trying to sway you in one way or the other. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no marketing ploy behind this. We are just, we're just here to inform you. And, um, one of the last factors that we'll talk about actually, um, not, I'm not going to tease it here or anything like that, but one of the last factors that we'll talk about, um, is very important, but should we move on from the semi-autos? Wade, do you have any, uh, any alibis? Uh, well, one thing I was going to add to the semi-auto that we didn't quite cover when we were comparing it to the pumps was the uh, the lack of recoil or less recoil that you see out of the semi compared to the pump. You know, if you're shooting, especially, you know, some of your guys that are shooting three-and-a-halves at geese or if you're using that same pump gun for turkey hunting, shoot three-and-a-halves, you know, you're getting all that recoil, whereas, uh, you know, with a semi-auto, especially a, a gas-driven, you're, you're going to lose some of that recoil and make it a little bit more comfortable, uh, which is really important, uh, you know, when you're talking about getting youth involved in the sport or or maybe your significant other that, that's not used to the kick of a gun, that could, uh, that could play a big part in that as well. That, that's a great point, too. And I just want to point out for all the listeners, because you guys can't see what goes on here, but um, Derek... You know, he went out and he shot his brand new Stoger, uh, what, which one? M3000. M3000. He probably put a half a box of shells through it. And, and he's rubbing his shoulder and he's all talking, oh man, my, I'm bruised up. And I put 35, <laughs> half of them were double Bs, half of them were twos, all were inch and three eighths, um, one and three eighths ounce, three inch shells. And I was pulling that trigger as fast as I could. Looking back, I probably shouldn't have done that shot that many shells or shot them just as quick as I could rapid fire either. But cause I could definitely tell it was an inertia gun cause it kicked a little bit less than my pump, but I could definitely tell I was getting most of that recoil on my shoulder. Yeah. But I, I'd be, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I've shot a couple gas operated semis and, uh, yeah, the, the recoil difference can be huge. And especially if you're talking about kids, um, one other thing about that is, is everybody always thinks, oh, lighter gun, you know, 20 gauge, uh, good to go. Um, actually, I just want to throw this quick segment in there. Um, if you're getting a kid into, um, you know, into it and, and you start them off on a 20 gauge or something like that, those things are super light. Um, watch those, you know, maybe go with the feather loads at first because the lighter the gun, the the less um, – the less powder that it takes to throw that thing back. Uh, just That's just science and math. Um, but, uh, yeah, the lighter the gun, sometimes you can get um, even even more recoil. Um, so there is that trade-off. But we'll talk about weight and stuff here in a little later. Um, I think that touches pretty good on semi-autos. There is one other action that I want to talk about. Um, we will just actually briefly mention there are bolt action uh, shotguns, but we're not going to cover them. They're not that common, I don't think, and probably not that you know typically used for a waterfowl scenario. Um, probably a great option for little kids um, as well, as Wade was saying. Um, you know, the safety factor is there. Literally, only one shell can fit in there, and then even past uh, the bolt action ones is the just the regular hammer action. I think mostly. The, I know there's a lot of 410s out there that are brake barrel and, and hammer action, um, which those can be nice and safe as well. But I wanted to talk about 
uh, break action over under or side by side uh, shotguns real quick because this <laughs> this upcoming season uh, I'm buying an over under specifically for waterfowl um, for you guys. I can't talk about it because um, I've never really, you know, hunted an over-under or side-by-side um, in a waterfowl scenario. But I'm buying, uh, a, you know, a blue-collar uh, barrel action or a break action um, over-under for this waterfowl season. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to not bring out my Browning VPS that I'm so comfortable with. Um, and I'm just going to do every hunt with that thing. Um because uh, I think there's there's several upsides to it, um, just on paper, and then just from doing my research, that it might be a great starter gun for um, a new waterfowler. First being price, um, second being that there's you know you can put multiple choke tubes in it, have different shell loadouts, um, and then I mean obviously there's the reliability that's there's just only a few things that can go. Uh, go wrong <laughs> instead of you know worrying about too much sticking and all that stuff and and I'm gonna try it out I'm gonna give it the uh, we'll call it try this this upcoming waterfowl season and I'll let you guys know about it um, I'd be interested to uh, hear if anybody you know religiously hunts with one of these what do you think of that Wade you know, our you know our friends down under yeah uh, talk talked about you know that's what is required. For them, so uh, you know, I, I think it. I think there's a lot of traditionalists out there that probably still stick to the the over and under or the side by side. I, I mean, I could see where it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe not for me so much. And since we're on the record, I think we should probably establish uh, uh, an over and under bet on how many times you're going to hunt with this gun before that BPS comes Ooh. back out. <laughs> okay, I, what's your take? What, what do you think? I, I'm gonna take the I'm gonna take the under on ten hunts. Ooh. Like before I break out the BPS. Yep. Okay, so I want to preface this with like, okay, ten hunts. All right, that's fine. Goose season you does like, not count. Like if it's a if it's a specific goose, I'm talking duck hunting. Like if it's we're going out like field goose hunt. That like was late my season. question. Was he going to take that thing in the field and be shooting big honkers <laughs> with the <laughs> over-under? <laughs> here's, the, my, here's my real question. Are you going to shoot teal with it? Yeah. I think I think the teal are going to break you on it by themselves. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, challenge. now I'm just going to do it just to tick you guys off. <laughs> All right. So Wade's got 10. 10 hunts. You think I'm not going to make it 10 hunts, right? I think you're not going to make it 10 hunts. We'll... we'll We'll figure out we'll figure out a, a gentleman's wager on this and uh, and put it up on the Facebook group for for uh, maybe some some repercussions for the loser. Okay, all right, all right, oh, and then obviously there's got to be some sort of win in it. But uh, so okay, Derek, what do you think? This is tough because I'm not going to be there to tell you every time that you miss that you should break out that Browning PBS, BBS and break <laughs> well, you down slow due to work. So I guess I can always text you. We're going to go with um, we're going to go with seven hunts simply due to teal season, and I'm going to rely on Tegan to remind you every time you miss that you could probably have more shots with a pump. 
All right. All right, Tegan. Tegan, what's up? I don't know, man. I think I think Ben's too strong-willed. I think the fact that you guys threw out a number, now he's got something specific to reach for. I, I think he's going to hold strong on the Ducks. Uh, since he outrolled Geese, I think he's going to stay strong. But if it. he gets skunked, he's going to continue boy. to get skunked. That's oh, my boy. Man. I don't know. I guess we'll find out how good a shot he is. <laughs> Let's see if he gets a big old duck egg or something. Well, you know, funny you know, funny thing about that is is that I've been shooting that dang BP. I don't think I've ever not yeah, yeah, I've never shot another animal with like a, another shotgun. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, the only animals I've ever harvested other than deer, obviously. Um I guess not obviously, but um have been with that BPS. I've been shooting the dang thing since I was twelve, so I don't even know if I've taken the the modified choke out of it. You're gonna have to. When do you plan on buying that? You're gonna have to get some some clay practice and might give you a different feel. Oh, I'm gonna. Yeah, I, I. Well, I told you this. We're gonna go up to Cabela's a couple times, but yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna definitely. Let's get off this. Let's transition. You guys, <laughs> we beat that. Come on. <laughs> come on. Yeah, there'll be a Facebook. I, you know, I'm trying to keep it a, a low dollar gun too. Um, just simply for the you know the. He's already the making the excuses of why he's changing that BPS. <laughs> I think this is not going to be an excuse. I think it's just going. I think it's just going to showcase uh, my superior shooting skills. I want to see this thing on a goose hunt. <laughs> I, I want to see this on a goose hunt now. I, I I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to have to tell Tegan like, "Hey, I can't even bring the BPS like in the truck as like a backup, like, you know." So, all right, well, guys. Completely failing us. All right, let's get to this. Let's get let's let's move on. That's enough on actions. Okay, let's talk about gauge and chamber. Okay, obviously, uh, when we're talking about gauges, you know, you're talking four tens for the for the little you know, for the tykes, twenty gauge for the you know um, the you know I, I would say probably the the I don't know Wade, how old do you got to be to be shooting a twenty gauge? I would say ten to fifteen range. Uh, okay. You know. Let's let's put a let's put a weight restriction on it. Probably be oh. easier. Under under 150 pounds would probably be a good 20 gauge size, maybe. T- so Tegan, why why don't you have a 20? <laughs> oh, I mean, why gotta be like that? Come on. <laughs> um, no, okay, yeah, so that's that's good. And then the other thing too is is I've taken my wife's. She's got a uh, Remington 870 youth model, and uh, I've taken that thing out during teal season, and that was sporty. I tell you what. That was sporty. That was fun. But, I mean, they were – one of my old teal holes, it was um, like they just came right in your face. So we were just demolishing, you know, the teal with our 12 gauges. So uh, I actually switched out for her 20 gauge and uh, cylinder. So. All right. And then obviously the – I would say the main staple of American waterfowling is the 12 gauge. Definitely. Should we talk? Isn't there a, is there something between an eight, uh, twenty and a and a twelve though? Oh man, sixteen gauge is kind of making a comeback. Yeah, yeah. that that used to be something, right? That used to be a pretty uh, common common load, I think, back in the sixties, right? I think Browning kind of kind of cornered the market with that Browning Sweet Sixteen for a long time, and uh, and people really shot it and enjoyed the gun. They got the 
got a better performance than the 20 gauge with the little less recoil than the 12. And it's, it's honestly seemed to kind of make a comeback over the last few years. Uh, maybe, maybe not so much with waterfowlers as much as uh, pheasant hunters, I think. Right. Well, Hey, maybe I'll get an over under 16 and just go all out on this thing. No, <laughs> but, um, okay. So then we got the 12 gauge. That's typically what, what we're shooting, um, out there. And past the 12 gauge, uh, well, we got 10, right? Well, yeah, 10. Anybody ever hunted with a, a guy that shoots a 10 gauge? I have not. Okay. I want to shoot a 10 gauge. Derek wants to shoot a punt gun. I think the, I think the, I think the entrance to shooting a, <laughs> the entrance to shooting a, a 10 gauge, well, Tegan probably can't shoot one because it would like <laughs> just blow him out of his blind. Um, but no, um, I think people use them for like late or for goose hunting for sure. Yeah, I, I know I've seen some posts. Seen, so. yeah. Field goose hunters that, yeah, they want that. You know, knockdown power and a really big bird that maybe isn't a super close shot. Ten gauge, four and a half inch shell. No. <laughs> um, all right, which there was a good transition, I guess. Chambering. Um, I think the the common lengths when they're talking about chambering, uh, read the side of your barrel, know your gun. If it's a hand me down gun, look there. I'm pretty sure I've put some three and a halfs <laughs> through my BPS before, um, which is only cha- uh chambered for a three inch round but you've got generally it's two and three quarter three inch and uh three and a half what let's go around the horn here um wade what do you shoot for the most part three three inch shells from uh the first day of teal season through the last day of goose season i shoot three inch for everything i i shot one season uh, with three and a half for waterfowl, and I decided I just wasn't that mad at them. <laughs> Derek, what about you, man? They make waterfowl shells that aren't three inch. Okay, because I haven't bought them yet. All right. I actually started off in high school. Uh, I started buying three and a half inch shells because of the hype of it, and it took one season. And my shoulder, and back then I was like one twenty five. I was even smaller, <laughs> and man, that <clears throat> it rocked me. It beat me up, and then. You know, I switched to threes and haven't looked back. So I'm the same way, three-inch teal through goose. Am I the only guy that rocks two and three-quarters during teal season? Not at all. I, yeah, I'll do that Okay, teal. I just yeah. don't want to buy a separate shell. It, it, okay, that, that makes sense, especially I'm, if you're buying bulk. I um, mainly shoot threes, but I've bought two and three-quarter because the price. I'll do that right, for, right. only for teal, but yeah. I still mainly shoot threes because I got them left over from season before. I'm one of those guys, despite all reason and logic, I'll look at a case of ammo. And I'll say to myself, oh, man, that's a good price. I should do that. That would save me a lot of money. But I say, oh, man, but then I can't play around with, like, ah, like maybe I want two and three quarters, too. Maybe I want, I don't know, you know. Um, But there are certain situations where, um, like I said, that those close teal shoots um, that I would, that's that's when I'd use my two and three quarters. And then I always have a box of two and three quarter just sitting in my truck, um, just as the reserve ammunition. So I don't think I'd want to shoot that box anymore though. Cause I think that was like my, that was like three years ago. I bought that box and that's a lot of heat and cold. So, um, yeah, I, I think generally you're going to get, you know, um, are there guns that are chambered for two and three quarter two three and a half? Yeah. Yeah. I have yes. 
Okay. I think most of your three and a halves take everything below. Okay. Yeah, if it's if it, if it's rated for as long as it's rated for the the longer shell, it'll take any of the shorter shells. Exactly. Yeah. So even your three will take two and three quarters, for instance, is kind of what weighed the same. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. I think we beat the chambering up, and we'll get more into ammo later. We've already been touching on that quite a bit. Uh, barrel lengths. Where do we stand on these? I'm a pretty strict 28 guy because I think it's comfortable for me with my swing and getting on the bird. Uh, but honestly, you know, there's not that big of a difference. Uh, Derek can probably tell you a little bit more about the logistics, but uh, I know that there's really not that much of an advantage to the longer barrel besides the swing and maybe the feel and the comfort. But as far as, like, the velocity and the shot string, you know, the longer barrel really doesn't make that much of a difference. I uh, The first gun I ever bought on my own after after I moved away from home was a was an 870 with a 22 inch barrel uh, that I bought for for turkey hunting at the time and then started waterfowl hunting when I still lived down in Louisiana and I hunted for two seasons with a 22 inch barrel uh, 870 for waterfowl and it was perfectly fine so I think today with the with the availability of changing around your choke tubes to, to manipulate your pattern. I don't think the length of the gun is nearly as important as what it once was. When it comes down to the length of the barrel, I shot past few years with a 24 inch barrel, 870. It's a super mag. It's, it's my true and true Turkey gun. That's why I like the short barrel, but they come in cupped. I'd shoot them. They'd fall. It's, when they were crossing real hard, I'd find myself not swinging as fast as I do with, let's say, my I have a, an 1187 with a 20-inch barrel I occasionally use. I can swing really fast. The biggest thing I've found is just the, the extra weight on the end of your gun does help you follow through on your swing. And the length of the barrel comes down to really a personal preference. There's, I have a cousin that is real strict on shooting this. He has a Beretta with a 24 I have seen that guy drop birds with a 24-inch barrel better than some people with a 28. So it's really comes down to personal preference. If you like to swing a lot, go with the longer barrel helps, but nothing works. Yeah, I think too. It's another thing is it's a weight thing. Um, you know, it, whatever balances your gun out the best. You know, um, you, you might have a you know a real heavy if you got a wood stock on it, it can handle that longer barrel a little bit better and feel a little bit more even. Um, I know when I shouldered some, here we are again, when I shouldered some over-unders uh, today, man, the the 26-inch felt better than the, you know, the 30. And I think uh, a lot of the, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I haven't done a whole bunch of trap shooting and skeet shooting, but those, the guns that are specifically designed for that, um, they're longer barreled for whatever, you know, go ahead. Um, I was talking to a guy who does a lot of trap shooting and he told me he prefers a 32 inch because when he says when he, as soon as he gets on target, he pulls that trigger because with the weight of the gun, it's already carrying him through the target. So by the time he reaches it, he's pulling through because his natural motion is to swing through it, causing him the correct lead and to get on target to the next one faster. Now for waterfowl, do you need a 32 inch barrel? Absolutely not. If you want to use one more power to you. I know I don't want to carry that much weight, but it really just, you got to find, you got shoulder guns, find what you're comfortable with. And you'll just, it's almost like for some reason, you just know the gun. As soon as you shoulder it, you just know that's the gun you like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, too, I think you, got, you just, oh, sorry, Ben. Uh, no, 
I was going to say, I think you probably just hit on a theme that's going to be common throughout this whole whole show is confidence and comfortability. Uh, you know, just like your friend, you were talking about shooting clays. You know, if if picking up that gun, if it feels right and you're confident with the way it feels and the way it swings to you, at the end of the day, that confidence is gonna is gonna help you to be a better shot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like the number one factor is confidence. <laughs> you know, whatever you feel confident going out into the field with, um, that's that's what you got to go with. Um, and then the other thing I want to touch on too is like, yeah, waterfowl hunting that can be some tight quarters. Um, talking about fitting five dudes into an A-frame, or um, you know, you're sitting in there and you're. Um, you know, in the, in your layout blind, you know, that thing's poking out an extra four inches. And, you know, then obviously if you're, you know, hunting green timber, if you're hunting out in the brush, just tuck it in, that's another, you know, extra, a little length there. And it's all, you know, relative to, I think like Wade touched on earlier too, I think uh, your size and your weight can definitely influence those things. I don't know about you guys, but I found myself having a problem sometimes when I like, overbrush a blind and then don't take a practice swing before the hunt. I'll pop up on that first shot and I get a corn stalk or a bundle of grass or something stuck on the end of the barrel and it can either make me not take the shot at all or throws my shot off and it, oh, it burns me. It ticks me off. Yeah, absolutely. So have we beat the barrel lengths up, gentlemen? I think so. Okay. Let's go and do uh, chokes, choke systems. The first thing I want to preface here is that um, every – there's a lot of, I think, um, compatibility. Some, you know, like you have to look at the choke system. Like the browning, not every browning has the same choke system. Some have the Invector Plus. Some have the – and I know last season I – so I lied earlier. I have taken that uh, modified choke out before um, to clean that thing, and I misplaced it somewhere. And I had to special order um, a choke because there was nothing that carried a BPS like Invector Browning Plus in Lawton, Oklahoma. Thanks, Lawton. Um, well, you were in Lawton, Oklahoma. What would you expect? I know. I know. <laughs> Thanks, Oklahoma. No. Um, but, uh, yeah, going back to it. So you just have to – you really got to watch um, that. And, and they, they got charts for it. Um, and that might be a determining factor in um, your selection. Oh, wait, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, that might be a determining, um, you know, factor in your, you know, selection or whatnot. But um, let's go down from, uh, let's just start from the most open choke to the, you know, most closed choke. Oh, the most open is definitely a cylinder choke. It's basically it's the whole length of your cylinder. The way I understand it, it is very little. Very it doesn't tighten it. Doesn't tighten it very much. And a lot of skeet and trap shooters use that because they like to have a lot of pellets to hit something. But for hunting, unless you're really really tight quarters, that's not going to be a very practical choke. Yeah. Hey, wait. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, man. You just lost a bunch of feedback on your end. Your sound quality got way better. I can barely hear you. Oh, cool. barely... <laughs> Did you, like, walk inside or something? We're not in an airplane. Anymore. No? Yeah. No, uh-uh. Okay. 
Well, yeah. Um, so beyond that, I guess, uh, where did you leave off? Sorry, I was into editing there. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, cylinder chokes, they're real good for skeet and trap, trying to hit clay pigeons. You got a lot of pellets. You got to just make a little mark on your skeet. But you're shooting at a, a bird, that's going to be a real wide pattern, and you may only get one or two pellets on the actual bird if your pattern's so wide at certain distances. Now, okay, should we explain to the listeners, what, what do you mean by that pattern? So what does a choke tube do? You know, you get the choke tube and you get these numbers on them, the point seven one three or 1.6 or whatever, and you get the diameter. I mean, what, what does that mean? Diameter, the tighter that it's, the tighter all your pellets of your shot shell, the tighter the opening they have to go through, the more dense they're going to be in the air. And the, what we call it a pattern with all how, the, how all your um, pellets fly in proximity of closeness so the closer they are together the tighter your pattern so the more if we talk about an open pattern there's more area between each individual pellet um flying through the air so a cylinder is going to have a very open pattern very loose pattern there's not there's just going to be a one um the one end of the pellets to the other end of the pellets are going to be a lot wider than if we're running a super full turkey choke and it's basically the way the how wide the pellets are going from one another from one end to the other the way the the way i've always kind of visualized it is imagine you got a bunch of people in a gymnasium which is the shotgun shell in the chamber um and you have you know double doors um and you open one door you know everybody is going to try to you know they're going to pile up on the door and they're all going to file out now you open up you know another door and now all of a sudden you're getting a wider pattern and then open up the uh, you know the third and the fourth door, and you have more people coming out. So, and obviously, it takes longer for those people to get out through one single door as well. So, but yeah, Wade, what do you shoot, and or what do you generally carry around? So after teal season ends, I shoot a I shoot a modified for teal dove, uh, and then after teal season ends, I actually go to a full choke. Uh, and it's probably worth mentioning, too, yeah. in general, uh, if you're shooting steel shot, steel shot is not going to perform the same out of a choke tube as a lead shot will. Lead shot uh, does not constrict or, yeah, lead shot does not constrict as tightly as steel shot does. So say you're shooting a modified with steel, you're going to be shooting closer to what a full choke would be with lead. Right. Uh, and. I think that that's the metal comp. That's the metallurgy because um, you know lead is a softer metal um, than right. steel is. So, um, in fact, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you shoot steel through a lead full choke, um, one, it's actually bad for your your choke tube system and can create create too much back pressure. Um, I think. And then the other thing too is is that you can get splashed. So instead of getting a tight, uh, you know, choke going through there. They're, those things are bouncing off the end of the barrel and creating a, a little bit of a, a short splash. So the, the important thing is look at your choke when you get it. Uh, when you look, when you get your choke on the side of it, it's going to say steel, lead, or, or both. Uh, because now I do, after teal season's over, I put a full choke in. And I shoot a full choke from, from the time Big Duck opens until all the way through goose season. Uh, uh, that's probably not the most common. I think modified would probably be the most common for waterfowl. 
Uh, but I, I have the confidence in that full choke with, with the shot size that I shoot to perform, and I, I know what it's going to do. Uh, and I've, I've taken my chokes out before and double-checked them just to make sure that they do say steel on the side of them. Yeah, and if, you, if you're if you a real avid turkey hunter and uh, you don't do much shooting during the summer, like uh, uh, perhaps this happened to me um, on the very first waterfowl uh, teal season hunt um, that I did last, last year, make sure you check your choke tube. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, Tegan, what do you shoot? Uh, I'm a pretty generic guy. I'm modified all the way through teal through goose. I just keep the same one in. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to be doing. That's normally what I do as well. Maybe not this year. Maybe I'll have uh, you know two different. Oh come on! Sorry, old Jeff Page tried calling us just now. <laughs> but um, don't worry. <laughs> this is going to be the most edit time I've done on an episode in a long time. Um, but anyways. All right, shall we move on from choke systems, boys, or do we do we need to touch any more on it, you think? Just real quick, I mean, for a lot of listeners, you know, this is probably pretty obvious, but again, we're trying to reach a lot of newbies and a lot of people who maybe don't have a whole lot of waterfowl knowledge. Uh, you know, we start off, Derek was talking about cylinder and improved cylinder, and then Wade made a good point about how he switches from his modified to the full after teal, and like Derek was trying to explain with the shot pattern and how those chokes manipulate it, the reason why is because, just for the listeners to understand, Wade is shooting bigger birds, so he wants a denser and a tighter pattern hitting those bigger birds for no- more uh, knockdown power. Correct. Okay, here's one that is um, hot and heavy in the waterfowl world, the stock material. You got wood versus plastic. Taken. I think... I shoot a synthetic, so mine's plastic. I started off with the wood. Uh, I grew up, you know, first got ever was a Woodstock 870 metal parts. Uh, but now it's all synthetic. About you, Wade? Uh, synthetic only. I, I I wouldn't, I don't think I would take a Woodstock gun out if I had a choice on a waterfowl hunt. And you're, you're, you're gonna get you're gonna get moisture in the wood. It's gonna it's gonna get scratched up. Things like that. Waterfowling is a tough sport on your equipment. So I, I always opt for this or I always opt for the synthetic over the wood for waterfowl. I have both, but for waterfowl, I only rock a synthetic. I have a well, wood stock that I think maybe sees the daylight once every two years. But other than that, it's all synthetic. You're gonna get your gun wet. It's going to get scratched, like Wade said, and there are just times that you, if you fall in, you get your wood gun completely underwater. That's not going to be good for that wood. That plastic isn't going to care. I don't know about y'all's wooden guns, but my wooden gun has quite the uh, vernier on it, and uh, I, I mean that—that's all I shoot. You know, it, it's a, and I actually I think this comes down to a uh, two things really: weight. And look, um, I've never really liked um, the com- you know the composite. Like it just doesn't look as timeless to me. And I think I th- all of my guns, I kind of like to have um, them to have the potential. Or you know, not to say that you know composites can't be, but I like to have the potential of it being like a a classic looking gun that I can pass down to you know my kid or you know my grandson or something like that that just looks a little bit 
I think the wood is kind of timeless, uh, maybe a little homage to the past that I I find a strong connection with with waterfowl hunting. So that's my own personal preference. Um, I don't know what the price points look like so much on wood versus composite. I think um, the wood's a little bit – or sorry, I think uh, – yeah, the wood's a little bit more. I think that synthetic plastic, I think they can make it pretty cheap. Depends if they're using real wood. If they're using walnut stocks, it's going to be a lot more. But now, like, I know Remington makes their 870s. Their base models are – it's not a true wood. It's more like a laminated wood, and those things are same price, sometimes even a little cheaper than the synthetics. But it's not the true timeless wood. It just looks like it. Right, right, right. And then the other thing that it boils down to is weight. You know, so your guys' composite guns, are, you know, that's, you know, ounces make pounds and pounds make pain. So, um, that's, that's one thing to consider. Um, what do you, what do you got on it, Wade? Well, going back to the price point, uh, on the composite, uh, I think the, I think the composite to wood price point now has gotten pretty close if you're talking about, the the standard color you know whether it be black or the the gray composite or something like that now if you're talking about the the painted composite that's usually about a hundred dollars more than the the wood or the standard black but uh i i'm kind of interested now i'm gonna i'm gonna after this i'm gonna go look up the weight difference on a on a composite to a wood because i in my head it just seems like the dense wood would weigh more than than a, a hollow composite uh, you know, s- stock on a gun, but you may be right. I've never looked it up, so I'm just kind of interested in that now. Oh yeah, no, I think um, no, I, I think definitely. Maybe I misspoke when I said that, but my wood gun or my wood stock is gonna weigh more. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I just probably misunderstood you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, that wood is definitely gonna weigh a little heavy. Now I know that my wife's uh, Remington 870 20 gauge. I know that wood on there. Um, I mean, it's not the same quality of wood that is on my Browning BPS, and it, it seems much less finished. Like, the, it's not, you know, you get a little drop of oil on that wood there, and I can see it, and i got to wipe it off almost. So, um, which is another thing to consider, too, when you're cleaning, keeping that, you know, uh, that wood. And you, you can, you know, touch that stuff up, but, uh, yeah, we got to beat wood and, and wood and plastic up anymore. I think so. I think we're good on it. All right. All right. Uh, the finish of your of your gun. Um, now, when we say finish, we're talking about the 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 metal, the the I guess the conditioning that goes into it. Uh, it's generally called uh, bluing. And I know that just two years ago, I, I got my Browning reblued uh, just because of, I mean, it was out there and. It was getting uh, some water on it, and maybe I wasn't the most diligent in my cleaning. And, uh, you know, through the course of regular maintenance and cleaning, you know, maybe we clean our guns too much, and um, some of that bluing was starting to wear off, especially towards the end of the barrel. But that bluing is what uh, – it helps keep the rust off, and it uh, helps keep that, that metal um, in shape over time. So – yeah, you know, that's the main reason why I stopped shooting that 870 was because I was noticing some rust on it, and that's what made me decide to go over to the synthetic because, you know, and that's probably the reason why, it, you know, not probably, it is the reason why synthetic is the waterfowler's finish uh, because, you know, it's not going to rust and it protects that gun. Yeah. Uh, Wade, do you, is 
what kind of bluing or do you know much about that on, on, on the metals? Yeah. So, you know, you've got, you've got your different levels of it because just going back to talking about the 870, the 870 over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, uh, as reliable it, as it was, was one of the worst guns in the world for rusting. You could, you could, take it out and clean it as soon as you got home, but it would rust from the blind to you got to the driveway uh, because it just, it didn't have any extra coat on it to protect that metal. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of the synthetic cover paint, whatever dip, whatever you want to call it. Is that uh, called coat or? Well, you got, I mean, you got the Cerakote is usually your solid colors and, and your dipping is your, you know, your camo colors. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of that. I know some of the newer guns, the new A400 that's coming out uh, this summer is pouting that it's, it's regular finished gun has a really good waterproof coat on it. I'll, I'll be interested to see that. I'm kind of, kind of interested in that gun period, but, uh, you know, to me, the Cerakote or the or the vinyl dip, whatever it is, to keep that rust off there is worth the extra hundred bucks when you buy the gun. Yeah, yeah. Want to touch on that at all? Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know about you guys. The only I shouldn't say complaint because you know I'm pretty rough on my gear and you know nothing's perfect. But the only thing that stinks about you know the way those guns come, uh, like Wade's talking about, not the Cerakote, but just the plastic or the paint finish, whatever's on it. Uh, I've noticed all the guns I've had with them on it, it chips really easy. Uh, you know, it's still going to prevent the rusting, but you know, half the camo I think on my gun after three seasons is pretty much chipped or stripped off. Yeah, one thing I know, one of my buddies, he had a Stoger. Um, I can't remember which model, um, but he put. We were out turkey hunting up in New Mexico. And we were getting ate up by bugs, and so he whipped out the thousand percent deed uh, bug spray and rubbed that all over him. And then he was handling his gun, and and that finish was coming off um, <laughs> in his hands. And wow. uh, so that's a you know for teal season, um, you know if you're wearing some bug spray out there. Also, uh, a good plug here for that is. I'm an avid, avid, avid thermocell supporter. And if you don't know what a thermocell is, that's like T-H-E-R-M-A and then cell. Um, those things are lifesavers um, during teal season. That's the Louisiana lifesaver right there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I don't. I literally don't go anywhere um, during the, the warm months um, without a thermocell. Um I, I've even got like a big lamp one that we set out on my deck that covers my whole patio. So, but yeah, back to um, the finishing and the Cerakote and that plastic um, that they put on. I think Stoger has that plastic pretty much standard on all their camo guns. And yeah, I think uh, I could be wrong here, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that only comes on the camo, right? The the metal, or sorry, like when you get a black synthetic gun, I believe. You know, the barrel has a finish on it, but it doesn't have that extra, like, camo paint layer. Mm-hmm. Is that wrong? I'm not sure what they use. I know when you get a, if you get the composite and black synthetic, very rarely is it blued. To me, it feels almost like a powder coat, but it doesn't hold up quite as well as a powder coat. It, it very well could pretty be easy, right? Yeah. Kind of like a hybrid of the two, maybe. Right, right. All right, well, let's move on to the different kind of sights. Um that we have on there. I know that I just rocked the single 
uh, end of the barrel, uh, a little pin, the bulb. I don't know what y'all use, but I have a, I think it's like a half inch high vis sight on the very end of mine, a green one. Um, I'm actually thinking about going to two though this year. Uh, I'm thinking about putting one on the middle of the barrel too to help me align that middle with the end one. But yeah, I I just have the small little, you know, like the bright green colored, or they come in red or whatever. The long little rods. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's gonna be good for low light uh, or low vis situations. So. So on that, I think uh, I think go, talking about the two sight pins first. Uh, if you if you're talking about a beginner waterfowl, I think that that middle bead, in, you know, halfway in between the end of the barrel and and your cheek is a very good idea it, it's the best way out there to to ensure that you're getting your your head your face all the way down uh and your eye lined up so that you're not <clears throat> so that you're not shooting over the birds that's you know the most, most common mistake you're going to run into uh for more seasoned waterfowlers i think it's still a good idea because you i have one i like it uh it, it gives you a good, easy way to tune up if you start missing birds. Uh, I think I, I've, I've used the high-vis sights before, the fiber optic sights, and I kind of go back to bow hunting on this a little bit. Uh, something I noticed in low-light situations, you've got that bright sight right there, and it, to me it almost distorted my, my view in a low-light situation uh, to where that dark object was almost drowned out by that brighter sight. So I, I actually went away from any kind of fiber optic in that scenario. And then now as time has gone on and I've shot shotguns more and more, I don't even, I, I, I'm almost tempted to take the sight pin off the end of my barrel. I, like, I you know, wait, I think it hinders you sometimes. So I am a very instinctual shooter and if you grew up, um, you know, shooting, uh, point, aim, shoot, um, like, you know, if you learned on, you know, your BB gun, you know, getting your sight picture right, doing all that, like, uh, if you started off deer hunting or anything like that, um, that's, uh, that's what, that's a, that's a way that they, like a style that they call, like, you know, you grew up point shoot, uh, point shooting. Um, if you grew up or you're just starting off and, um, you're doing a lot of wing shooting, um, I honestly can't tell you what my sight picture looks like. I'm an, inst- it's just so, it's an instinctual thing. And you know, I, I think it was Steven Rinella and I don't want to misquote this, but he was talking about like, it is in your DNA to pick up a spear or like to know the trajectory of an object and something's moving and you have that shot solution in your head, in your DNA. Um, and Swinging through and things like that, there's a lot of drills and tips that you can do to make sure that you have really good shooting, um, oh, you know, form. Yeah, shooting form. And there's a lot of, and I am not saying I'm I'm not the best shot out in the marsh or in the tree stand or anywhere, but I'm in a very instinctual shooter, and things are just like it's a it's a feel thing, and I'm you know I can't I can't even tell you what my sight picture looks like. Um, and that's something to be said about, you know, growing up wing shooting upland and, you know, clay targets, just getting out there. Um, and pretty soon you'll, you'll, you'll have it down. If you put enough, if you chuck enough rounds down range, you're going to have that, that feel. And it's, it's important to touch back on making sure that you're, you have the right mechanics. Um, but just, I think 
the the one thing that you can do to improve your shooting is to shoot more. So. Absolutely. Well, what about you, Derek? I grew up in the flatlands of western Kansas, and all we do out there is shoot pheasants. Grew up one bead at the end of the gun. I don't think I use it. I just kind of, something flies up in front of me. I know I can shoot it. I point, aim, pull the trigger. Point, aim, pull the trigger. I finally sent my Remington um, pump to Carlson choke tubes to have them put a second bead on it because I missed two turkeys one year in a row and it made me mad. And that's the only gun I run twin beads on. That's the only situation I'll ever run twin beads is for turkey hunting. Everything else is, I just, I don't even really, I just point and shoot. I don't even aim. I don't stop and lead something. I just point, shoot. and Because if I stop and start thinking about my shot every single time I miss versus if I just react, if I'm a reaction shooter, instinctive shooter, if I just react, it's usually a much better shot for me. Right. Well, Derek, I know why you missed those turkeys because you were closing your eyes because you were scared of that 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 hitting your shoulder again. You know, you I shoot wanna... three and a half out of the pump gun, Ben. Let's do this. <laughs> well, I think you just brought up a great point, Derek. Uh, and you you go back and think about the scenario when you're hunting. How many times do you watch those mallards crossing, and you may see them two hundred yards out there, and they they come in, and you're watching them the whole way. You stand up, you take a good lead on them, you pull the trigger and just whiff, and, and you're like, what what just happened? And, you know, you're kind of overthinking it and aiming the shotgun versus that group of teal that buzzes in, scares the crap out of you. You jump up, don't even think about it, and knock one down because you, you, just, you just pointed the gun and instinctually shot. I think the times that I know, like, oh, yep, this is what I did wrong, and it's the most uh, thing – is getting getting that shotgun seated in your shoulder and putting your cheek down. You know, that's if I'm missing birds, uh, that's the that's the two things that I tell myself and I'm back on them. So, getting that good seat in your shoulder and then uh, putting that putting that cheek down and uh, making sure uh, yeah, things are tight. You know, won't be loosey-goosey, you know, trying to pop a shot. <laughs> Well, I think you guys all touched on something good right there, and it's in, you know, I'm going to kind of contradict something we've already said here about, you know, the more shots you get, the better it'll be, but sometimes that's not the case. Uh, you know, when you're in a hunt, how many shots are you going to get off, you know? If you're lucky, maybe 6 to 10, you know, maybe 20, I guess, if you're on a really, really good hunt. Uh, you know, sometimes, like Wade and Derek were touching on, if you start shooting a lot, it might throw you off. You start thinking about things, you start second-guessing, you're trying to overcorrect some things. And so I actually picked this tip up from a bow hunter who said, you know, sometimes when you knock an arrow on a deer hunt, you're only going to get one shot. And so every single morning before he goes to work, he steps out his back door, he fires off one shot, and that's it. And I started practicing like that. Now, the last couple summers when I shoot clays, you know, especially if I start missing and I'm getting frustrated – Instead of taking 50 or 100 shots at the clay range, I'll shoot 5 or 10, and I'll take a break, I'll set the gun down, I'll relax, I'll get up, and I'll shoot a couple more. And that's kind of like what Wade's talking about. That's the more realistic when he was talking about, you know, get that group of teal buzzing in, you're firing off a couple shots, you know, then you're probably going to have, a, you know, maybe a 10-minute volley before the next group. And that's, you know, practice like you play. I think that's a little more realistic to your hunting situation. It's funny you mentioned that group of teal buzzing in, Wade, because my first ever duck hunt, 
And to this day, this is the best I've ever shot or ever shot. I dropped three teal. As I'm sitting there staring at something else, I just pull up, shoot, and immediately go into upland mode where you just point, pump, point, pump, point, pump. And ever since then, I've been trying to think about this. Everyone says, follow your leads. You have to lead more with ducks. You have to lead more with ducks. So I catch myself shooting my first shot, which sometimes I'll hit, sometimes I miss. But my second shot, I always extend that lead out and... I think it's like you said, when you start thinking about that, you just, you're going to whiff every time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think let's tie this back in. Uh, Like we have all said multiple times throughout this, um, ergonomics, the weight and the fit and the feel are huge. The confidence is huge. Um, You can do all the research that you want on the internet, on on the interwebs, and you can listen to us four jamokes talk about these guns the you know for an hour and 20 minutes um, go down to the store um, shoulder that thing find the one that feels good if you can find a buddy that's got a, a you know shoot your buddy's guns check them out um, and I think with that Derek why don't you go ahead and just give us some of the the big names and these are the names from um, you know that uh, we had on the uh, the waterfowl podcast group um, of kind of what everybody's shooting. You want to just go down the list real quick? Yeah, we'll go down in order. Um, most people shoot um, in the group Remington. We have then Benelli. After that is Beretta. Um, Stoger, then Browning, Mossberg, Winchester, Franchi, Savage, and then TriStar. And out of these, the biggest, like, when I think of waterfowl guns now, everyone thinks of waterfowl guns now is a Benelli. Everyone, first thing you think, they've kind of almost, they've created their own little niche in the market. And it's very interesting to see this as the three out of the top four are actually the same corporation now. But Remington, which everyone thinks the old Remington 870, was number one. And I know I have two Remingtons. I mean, Remington 870s are the timeless gun. They're there for a reason. But the, the biggest names in waterfowl that I think of are Benelli and Beretta. Just top of the list. We're not that the first thing that comes to my mind when you're talking about a true waterfowl gun. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, <laughs> it's obviously uh, Benelli, and then I, just because of my own personal preference, it's Browning, you know. I think Browning is still relevant, though, especially, you know, you're, if you're a classic guy. You're A5. I don't think the A5 is ever going to die, you know. That's kind of, we talked about the Sweet 16 earlier. Browning kind of made a killing off of that, and they've actually even brought it back, you know. The old humpback for me, you know, when I think of waterfowling, I love the history of it. So I think of classic things first. And so actually, I think I think of the A5 before anything. Okay. Wade? Well, I think I think uh, the Benelli niche that we were talking about a second ago, I mean, I think they, they're the, they cornered the market in the modern duck gun with the semi-automatic that specializes, you know, for waterfowl hunting. You look what they've done with the SB3 with oversizing the the uh, action handle and and the uh, magazine or the bolt release and uh, things like that, and I think you know, obviously they're owned by the same company as Beretta, so you see a lot of the same characteristics there. Uh, and then and then Browning right there with them. I think Remington is still in the conversation just from the history standpoint that we already talked about with the, with the 870, you know, you get a guy that's starting out duck hunting and he sees, 
you know, he can go to Walmart and get a 870 for $310 or something like that. He's like, well, maybe I'll get that until I figure out if I like this. And then we kind of seem to all migrate yeah. towards the higher dollar guns after that. Right. That's important. Well, uh, should we move on to the listener voicemails? Uh, Wade, you want to go ahead and pull up uh, voicemail number one, and that is from. Let me know when you're, you're ready, uh, when you got it up, and then I'll tell you when to press play. Um, hey, bef- before we go into that, I was going to add one thing on the ergonomic side of the oh, yeah. of the firearms. Uh, you see a lot of the guns nowadays coming out with adjustability factors. Uh, mm-hmm. You may be able to put it. You may be able to put a shim in yourself to adjust the length of pull and. And things like that. So I think that's one thing to take into account when you're out there looking for a new gun. You know, if you go to if you go to the the gun shop and that gun doesn't fit you perfectly, check and see if it's one of those guns. I know my my 300 came with uh, I think three shims, and I was able to I was able to adjust it down for a smaller frame uh, to where the length of pull was shorter on it. You know, that much more comfortable, and I can handle it that much more that much more reliably so it's just uh one more thing that's that's in there that that we get to kind of use nowadays that may not have been a thing in the past right this is matt from hbs yeah so i got the remington bursa max i love this gun i hunted with an 870 for the longest time now i have the bursa max got that a couple years back and it is it just i love it it swings so smoothly i can get on birds has a little longer barrel than my 870, so, you know, it's a lo- little easier to lead them to. And uh, the semi-auto, I love that. The only thing I've had an issue with is that the bolt action falls out, and I actually lost it last year, but I called Remington right up, and they had one out to me the next week so I could go hunting with it again. Uh, I would highly recommend it for the price point and just just all the intangibles about the shotgun itself. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in, you know, getting into waterfowl hunting or who wants to upgrade from a pump action to a semi-auto. I would rem- I would recommend the Remington Versa Max. All right, that was uh, that was Matt Lee from High Prairie Sportsman. Go ahead and check them out on uh, YouTube. They got a lot of good content and they got a lot of helpful content for for new hunters as well. Um, Wade, I think we he just literally said something that you had talked about. Um, they get that Remington 870, try it out, and then they, they branch on from there. Um, anybody else have any comments? Uh, you know, yeah, that's, I mean, basically just building off what you said. I guess we didn't really touch on either the other options that companies offer. Uh, you know, Remington has some really good semi-autos. Um, and then, you know, Benelli, like we were saying, you know, they we think of Benelli, we think of like an SBE2 or an M2, you know, one of those higher-end semi-autos. But for some of you budget-friendly people out there, who maybe want a pump or is a cheaper gun that's still reliable and a good company. You know, Benelli also has the Nova and the Supernova, you know, the mm-hmm. cheaper pump versions. Right. Wade, you got any alibis? Yeah, that that I've used the Supernova. A buddy of mine, actually, Neil, brought that as our backup gun a couple of years ago on a trip up to Cheyenne Bottoms. And uh, I, I just brought my new 870 out and was having some problems ejecting the shells out of it. And... Uh, <laughs> He was like, "Well, you know, I've got I've got the Supernova. You want to use it?" So we went and got it, and that is one bulletproof gun. It uh, it it will shoot every time. It'll kick your teeth in, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's gonna go bang every time you pull the trigger. All right, 
Right. Hey, this is Mike Gruel just calling in to talk about, uh, leave some comments about a shotgun. So my shotgun is the Breda A400. And when I, when I went on the market to purchase my forever shotgun, I looked at the SBE2, Benelli, and the A400. And, uh, to me, it was really a question over inertia versus gas. And obviously they, they both have, you know, their positives and negatives, but, I chose the A400 because it was, it, I, I needed a three and a half inch gun that I could use for sporting clays and skeet, trap, things like that. And the Breda A390 at the time wouldn't cycle lighter loads correctly. So I went with the A400 because it had the gas system. But the forearm is bulkier than like an SBE2 because it uses the inertia, inertia drive. So. Uh, I guess the, for most people, the uh, slimmer forearm, like I have a lot of friends that own SB2s, and, and they fit them better because it's lighter. It, it requires less cleaning than a gas piston, the inertia drive, but you have a lot more felt recoil. So if you're going to shoot 100 rounds of sporting clays, the A400 with the kickoff system and the gas piston system, you you have less felt recoil, and then it's the same thing with like a three and a half inch shell. I feel way less recoil than my buddies do when they shoot a three and a half inch shell. So, but that's pretty much all the comments I have. All right, thanks guys. Bye. All right, well, thanks Mike Rule for that. Well, anybody got any comments for him? I mean, pretty much touched on a lot of things that we touched on. Uh, you know. He knows his gun well, and it seems like he's pretty confident with it and works for him, so that's good. He had a really good point about the multi-use because inertia gun is not something you want to take to the old trap range and run 100, 200 shells through it eventually on your shoulder. And it's just they a lot of times they're not going to cycle those lighter loads as well. But if it's a gun that all you're going to do is take it, throw it down in the mud, throw it down in the blind, then that's something to look at. But for a multi-purpose gun, he pretty much hit it on the head with that a 400 yeah you know that might come into play when you're thinking about buying your shotgun that multi-purpose gun because if you're wanting to use it for waterfowl and upland let's say you're not going to probably want to be carrying a super heavy waterfowl gun you know through a crp field all day yeah wade any throwaway touch points on the the a 400 yeah so full disclosure uh, after getting a beretta and starting shooting it uh, over the latter part of last season, I'd say uh, 50 to 60 birds harvested with the Beretta. <clears throat> I'm uh, I'm sold. I'm a huge fan of it now. Uh, it's it's easy on the shoulder. Uh, didn't have any problems with it cycling. Uh, it didn't take nearly the cleaning that I expected a gas a gas gun. It wasn't nearly as dirty as I thought it would be, uh, so I, I'm a big fan of that. And I'm, I think I'll going forward, I'll, I'll continue to be a fan of a gas gun. Uh, I've seen the I've seen the inertia guns slow down cycling in the in the colder weather, so I don't think the the old uh, homegrown facts of oh you never have to clean an inertia gun are actually. 100% true. I, I think it, it can 
it can slow down on cycling and have issues. So I, I, I'm right there with Mike on that, the red. Right. And th- there's just a couple uh, areas that need special attention on, on the gas guns, uh, the way that I understand it. Um, and those are something that, I don't know, maybe Wade, you could talk about that. Uh, it's uh, to me when you take it apart, it's pretty obvious right at the end of the. I, I'm going to get my nomenclature wrong here, but right at the at the forward end of the action, where the gas is is trapped first, uh, there's there's a a gas ring right there, and that really seemed to be the only place that got much of a carbon buildup. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I would say so. I hunted with it from. Uh, Christmas last year to February 15th and I cleaned it twice or three times and that was some some pretty heavy hunting throughout that period so I probably put oh I don't know 200 rounds through it during that time maybe Uh, and it it just wasn't nearly as nearly as dirty as, as I expected it to be right right yeah and that's you'll find every every gun has its you know, point that gets the most dirty and you'll figure that out. But you want to go ahead and uh, pull up that next voicemail? Yeah. Hi guys, it's Chad Dawson. Uh, my go-to gun for uh, duck season is a Remington 1187. I picked this up used from a pawn shop. Uh, it's been its life as a trap gun before I got it. Uh, it's just a, it's just a boss. It travels through shells, no problem. It takes the the wear and tear of abuse of the of the marsh, the the field blinds. It does it all. The the gas driven system uh, is easy on the shoulder for all day shooting, and it's it's a all seasons gun. It'll handle dove, ducks, turkeys, anything you want. Uh, just a beautiful gun. It's got a good heavy weight for a nice swing through, and uh, it's my go to gun of choice. All right. Well, thanks, Chad. Um, yeah, once again, touching on the, the versatility and, you know, being able to shoot it through all seasons is definitely, you don't want, you know, at least when you're starting out and, uh, you don't want to just pigeonhole yourself, um, into, you know, only being able to hunt one type of, of thing. And, you know, you can, you can hunt them all with any, any type of gun, yeah, but Yeah. Some people prefer the the special, you know, getting special with it, and um, really, you know, having one shotgun for one different type of uh, situation and another for another one. But uh, I think for a lot of the more common people, that you know, price point is what it is. But then, you know, you also don't want to be buying three different shotguns. So, all right, should we roll into the the, the next voicemail? Hi, this is Mel German, and I'm calling for the Fourth of July entry. Um, I shoot a Mossberg 500, uh, three and a half inch Magnum capability. It is, uh, blued with the Woodstock barrel. Uh, it's, uh, relatively new to me and despite what Derek says, I am not removing the Mossberg stickers on it. Alright, thanks man. You guys have a great one. Bye. All right. Thanks, Mel. And I think it's super important to, um, you know, those stickers on the end of your barrel, those mean a lot. Those matter. They're not on the end of the barrel. They're <laughs> on his stock and on his foregrip. It all started one time. I 
just joking around. I was like, if it's class, you got to take those stickers. He's like, I ain't taking off the damn stickers. So now every time <laughs> I see that gun, I need to remind him. And I see him every day at work. I remind him that he needs to take the stickers off his Mossberg. And now it's become our little tradition. <laughs> Are you just prejudiced to the Mossberg? I just, I, just, I just told him. He was talking about I was a classic and just joking around in the blind, just saying, take those off and it'll be a classic. And, and he's like, I ain't taking off the damn sticker, so. You know, that is one we didn't talk about. The Mossberg 500, I would definitely consider it a classic. Yeah, yeah. it's right there. It's right there in that 870 conversation. Yep. Yep. Well, I think the last voicemail we have is from uh, Devin, Devin Alt. Um, I'm going to pull that up here real quick. And I think Devin's is kind of unique because he, I think he did some, he's done a lot of modifications to it. And um, I think that touched into what Wade said earlier. Uh, but I think he went just a little, a little further. So let's hear from uh, Devin Alt. This is Devin Alt. Um, I'm calling to give my shot, one of my shotguns um, that I use for waterfowl. I have a semi-automatic in Stugger M3500, which I love. Um, it's modified because when you first get it, they typically shoot high and to the left. Um, so you have to modify it in the stock. The other um, thing is I wrapped it myself in camouflage. Um, you get two options, camouflage or, or black. And um, cheaper option was to take it and wrap it, 30 extra bucks, instead of paying 100 and some extra bucks to do it. Uh, to have it already wrapped. Uh, I shoot uh, number three, three-inch black clouds under it because it's what cycles the best through it. And I also shoot a Kits High Flyer full choke. The other option, when I get either bored or want to have just a little bit more cha- of a challenge, is my great-granddaughter's Mossberg AT500. It's a pump shotgun. can only handle up to three-inch shells. Um, I shoot anything through it, and I kill. It's a, a built-in full choke, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I used it for turkey. I've killed almost anything with it: turkey, squirrel, deer, um, ducks. I actually shot my first ducks with it, which is pretty cool. Um, it's passed down some four generations of alts, which is. Uh, Really cool. I don't hunt with it much on big water just because I don't want to lose it. So that's the reason why I got a Stoger M3500. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. Sorry about the last one. Pretty, uh, I got a lot of stuff going on at the house. People kept walking in and stuff. So appreciate it, Ben, and taking all you guys do. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, and uh, Devin's first voicemail that he left me was hilarious. And, uh, uh, well, not, not, um, podcast worthy or radio ready um so we're going to just hold that um you know for some blackmail for for devin later but um i think it's uh, pretty interesting yes like you said you can wrap your own gun you can dip your own gun or or whatnot um i don't think it's necessarily quite for the novice um but uh yeah you can even they sell um kits so you can cerakote your own gun at home i know it involves using your household oven if you feel comfortable putting your gun in the oven but oh, they yeah, have zero coat kits. that would definitely make my wife happy that would please her a lot um <laughs> well shoot the first thing i'm worried about is he said that that m3500 shot high and left naturally i'm i'm wondering if i need to go uh 
go fix mine, or maybe I can just keep using it as an excuse while I'm shooting behind birds. Yeah, it's probably best to just keep it as an excuse. So. <laughs> I got but. shins for it. But yeah, um, actually, everybody, a uh, quick 30-second review plug for your shotgun, because everybody loves to defend what they bought. Um, just uh, real down and dirty. I know, Wade, you, you talked about yours quite a bit, but um, would you recommend? I'd recommend a Beretta A300 to anyone. Uh, the price point on it for a semi-automatic shotgun that performs the way it does is better than any of the competition that I know of. Um, yeah, I'm currently in the break-in period with my Stoger M3000, but thus far I like it. It seems like it's going to be fun, and I enjoy getting hit in the shoulder. That's one of the big things I love about waterfowl hunting. You can ask Tegan. That's why I want to shoot a 10-gauge. So... <laughs> It just seems like it's going to be a real good gun, real reliable, and like their motto is works as hard as you do, and it seems like it's just going to be a real, real good trenches gun. I've seen you pushing those carts at Menards, man. You don't work that hard, so. I drive a forklift. <laughs> work smarter. <laughs> work smarter, not harder. Uh, I also shoot an M3000 by Stoger, and, uh, you know, when I first got it, I actually got it because of the price point. I couldn't afford a high-end semi-auto, and I got it brand new from Cabela's on sale, and with the rebate, uh, it ended up only being 450 bucks. so I couldn't complain there. Uh, as far as reliability, though, I couldn't be happier with it, especially for the price point. Uh, I'm going into my fourth season with it, and after three full seasons, um, you know, it, it's shot true. I can't, I have zero complaints about it. Man, that Browning BPS, I'm already, like, choking up thinking about not taking it out on opening day now. So, Wade, wait. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but, I win. Uh, yeah. Winner so, gets the um, BPS. No, 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 no. Ooh. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, I was left-handed. Uh, well, I am left-handed, I should say. And so everybody, my you know, my grandpa was concerned that I'd be, like, a left-handed shooter or something like that. And so he chose that BPS because it's got a bottom eject um, and the trigger mechanism is on the top of the gun. And I really like that because um, when I'm pulling up on birds, it, that's you know generally a very vertical motion, you know, coming down from your side, coming up, and it's one fluid motion. And right when I get on that bird, my thumb clicks over and my, tr- my, my trigger finger comes down onto the trigger and it's just uh, supernatural. And then as it comes back down, it gets clicking off. And I've always found, you know, I'm a big stickler on safety, but... Um, and being conscious of your safety going on and off, um, it shouldn't be second nature for your, your safety to come, you know, click off and then click, you know, back on. That's, that should be a conscious decision every time in the blind. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I really enjoy the, having that, that kind of that vertical thing. And plus if you're hunting next to me, um, you're not going to get peppered in the face by my brass. Um, cause it's just going to have that bottom eject, which is real nice and, uh, makes clearing out shells super easy. Cause all you do is just pop that thing up and down and rack it. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I highly recommend the, the Browning, Browning BPS, but all right. So that just about wraps duck guns up. We will, uh, in future episodes, we'll, we'll talk about ammo, um, selection and whatnot. Uh, for different hunting scenarios and styles, but we're uh, about an hour and a half right now, and figured we'd better let you guys get to work. You know, we know you're probably all sitting out in your truck, and your boss is texting you, and I just got to finish up this foul front episode real quick. And what the what the heck? But Wade, you got a big busy weekend coming up uh, in your face, and I wish you all the the best of the luck. 
Um, and a little teaser episode here. We have uh, the Women in Waterfowl or Women Around Waterfowl episode coming up, um, which is uh, we're going to have Lydia, your wife, on, my wife, uh, and talk about the the woes and the the pitfalls of marrying a, uh, a waterfowler and the joy of having them, the, their love and their support out in the field and then bringing them out there. So, Am I by myself in being a little bit worried about this? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she she's great. I mean, to put up with to put up with my garbage for five months of waterfowl season, I can't complain a bit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, all right. Well, any parting shots from any of you gentlemen? I think the biggest takeaway of the episode, in my opinion, uh, I saw a direct correlation with all the people that called in, is confidence. Be confident in what you shoot. I second that. Yep, same thing. Just be comfortable with what you shoot. Be confident and make sure it's the gun you want to be shooting. Look good, feel good, play good. Okay, hey, get out there. Find your local DU chapter. Get out there. Throw some of that hard-earned money at the Ducks. And uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like. And we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right. Stay safe out there and we will see you next week. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water. Every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.